Our topic for this evening is the topic of authority, and it's entitled Respecting Authority. Authority is one of the most important aspects of our existence. Uh, In fact, if there's an issue that we deal with on a daily basis, it's that issue of authority. It's a crucial issue. It's a fundamental issue. It really defines a lot. uh, Our understanding of authority defines a lot about us. How we look at authority, how we relate to authority, how we exercise authority, and so on. Authority is one of the most important concepts of our very existence. And what has happened, especially in this last year, is we've realized very vividly that our culture is in a crisis of authority. Whether it is the Black Lives Matter uh, protests that took place particularly this summer, the Antifa riots that destroyed billions of dollars worth of property, whether it was the storming of the Capitol on January the 6th of this year, whether it's the explosive growth of this transgender movement that has seized our politicians, blinded them, whether it's the rapid popularization of socialism, all of these things are showing us very vividly today that our culture is in crisis with respect to authority. And, of course, we shouldn't be surprised. The, the warning signs have been in place for many decades. One writer by the name of Kenneth Wingate writes this, quote, Americans have grown noticeably hostile toward authority figures in the last 50 years. Since the 1950s, when members of the so-called greatest generation were running the country and raising their families, rejection of the establishment has taken on epic proportions. Presidents, parents, and pastors were once respected, even if disliked. That is no longer the case. The rallying cry of the 1960s was, question authority. The self-absorbed me generation of the 70s led to the self-indulgent material generation of the 80s and 90s. The weakening of our social institutions has been profound. In the common parlance, many young people today have serious respect issues with parents, teachers, pastors, bosses, and authority figures in general. How do we ever reverse the decline. Now, if you're a public school teacher, for example, and you interact with children, you know where this country is headed just by looking at the anarchy among young six and seven year olds. My wife has done some substitute teaching from time to time over the last two years before the COVID pandemic hit. And even though she has experience even before that in, in teaching, she would come home with the most bizarre and discouraging stories of young children and their anti-authoritarian perspective. Little kids as devils in the classroom, controlling everything, throwing furniture and anything else they could find and creating misery for adults and adults not knowing what to do, and even if they did know what to do, being prohibited by the state of doing anything. We are in a, a spiral downward in these days, and it is only picking up in speed. We are in a decline into lawlessness and anarchy. But the challenge to authority is really not new. In fact, if we really think about it, The challenge to authority is as old as sin itself. The solicitation of the serpent in the garden, the solicitation to encourage Adam and Eve to raise their fist and challenge the authority of the Creator, that is where the attack on authority began. 
many, many millennia ago. And of course, as we know, they fell. And ever since, their descendants have been characterized at their heart by rebellion. Sin is rebellion. Rebellion against God and against any other form of authority that is derived from him. In fact, if we just define sin itself, what is sin? I like what R.C. Sproul said when he said this, Every sin is an act of cosmic treason, a futile attempt to dethrone God in his sovereign authority. So again, you you see that even in that definition, we realize that indeed authority is the most basic concept of our existence. Our response to authority says so much about us. Sin is is all about authority. And in fact, as we're going to see tonight, even salvation is all about authority. Now, the issue of authority, therefore, is a very important issue for biblical wisdom. And so it's only logical that we would find a lot of teaching on authority in the book of Proverbs in particular. In fact, it's even evident just by looking at how the book was composed and by looking at the purpose for why the book and its contents were compiled. When we look at the book of Proverbs, we see that it continually attributes its contents and its compilation to kings, to authority figures, whether it's Solomon or Hezekiah or King Lemuel. Over and over again, we we see that these Proverbs are either spoken by or compiled by kings. And not only that, when we look at the purpose for which this book came into being, we see that it it was compiled, all these different sayings, these wisdom statements were compiled to pr- pr- produce a manual for young princes. And so that's why we see in the book of Proverbs so often this exhortation, my son, my son, my son, and that's coming from a king. And so the king is instructing his young prince, his future monarch on the ways of leadership, how to rule, how to lead in this current treacherous world outside the Garden of Eden. This is the book of Proverbs, and it deals much, therefore, with authority. And as we read the book of Proverbs, as I'm sure you have noticed, we realize that the book of Proverbs has a very positive view about authority and structure. Authority and order. Authority and hierarchy. And that is why the book of Proverbs certainly is not a favorite among young people today. Those who would be anarchists. The book of Proverbs extols the benefits and the necessity of authority. It places an emphasis on authority and shows us that now more than ever, in a, in a world that is treacherous, a world that is cursed, a world filled with sin, authority is as important as ever for the benefit and the protection of mankind. Authority is necessary, and Proverbs teaches that very, very clearly. And certainly at the same time, as we will see, it does also teach that this Authority can be easily corrupted and abused. Now, before we get into it, I want to make one slight qualification to what we are going to study this evening. Obviously, when we look at the book of Proverbs and its role in the Old Testament, its role in the people of Israel, we see that that the book of Proverbs was assembled, was compiled for what we call a theocratic nation. Israel was a unique nation. Israel was a people that was eventually led by a king, but the king was to serve as a mediator between God and the people, and God would, in a very unique way, would mediate his own authority to the king 
through the law, through the Mosaic law. And so we call Israel of the Old Testament a theocratic kingdom, ruled by God through his vice-regent, a king who himself is under the law of God, the written law of God. And so when we look at many of these Proverbs, there is that assumption. Now, we don't live in a theocratic nation. At least I hope you realize that we don't. We do not live in a theocratic nation. We live in what is called a secular nation. And we don't live as a people that has been promised territory and has been given the Mosaic law as its constitution. We are in a different status. Moreover, we are part of the church, a spiritual entity that has its uniquenesses and differences from the people of Israel. Nonetheless, as we go through our lessons this evening from the book of Proverbs, we do see that the principles that it lays down for us are not only specifically applicable to a theocratic nation, they are generally applicable to us today. And that is vividly demonstrated by the fact that the New Testament writers take these very principles and turn them to the church as well. We'll talk a little bit about that as we go through. Well, as we study this topic this evening, as we look at the book of Proverbs, I want us to look at four lessons. Four lessons on respecting authority that we can glean from the book of Proverbs. The first one is this. A proper attitude toward authority identifies God as the ultimate sovereign. This is where it all begins. If we were to have a proper understanding of authority and even a proper exercise of authority, if we have responsibilities of leadership, our understanding must begin with the recognition that God alone is sovereign. There is no other authority that supersedes his authority. There is no one who competes with his rule. There is no no impersonal law that exists out there somewhere according to which God must abide. He is the law. He is the standard. His character is sovereign and it is from him as a personal God that all other authority comes. All other authority is derived. In fact, there's no basis to understand or accept the concept of human authority apart from a a fundamental appreciation for God's sovereignty. And that explains why our culture is in the predicament it is today. The culture has long ago abandoned any concept of God as the ultimate authority, as the one to whom man must give an account. And therefore, because the one true God has been categorically rejected by masses in our culture today, therefore there is no proper understanding and cannot be any proper understanding of authority, what it actually is and how it is to be exercised. Only This belief in the one true God as the ultimate sovereign gives us a platform, a basis, a foundation on which to move further and develop a more comprehensive understanding of authority. The wise men of the Old Testament, the wise men in Proverbs, recognized this. And so in their Proverbs we see that it is only the man who submits to this reality... It's only that man that can expect to live in in success in God's eyes in this treacherous world. It all begins here. I like what Abraham Kuyper once said, and this is fundamental to a biblical worldview. He said this, quote, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. We must begin here. This is what sets us in the right trajectory for understanding authority. And so let's look at a few Proverbs, and there's many that we could turn to, but I'll give you just a few. Let's turn to this very popular or well-known set of of statements in Proverbs 3, verses 5 to 7. 
Here, Solomon says to his son, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Those sentences are filled with acknowledgments of God as the ultimate sovereign. Proverbs 19 verse 21 Many are the plans of a man's heart, but it's the counsel of the Lord that will stand. Again, you you know what this is. We make plans all the time, and we're constantly adjusting. But that is not the case with God. The counsel of the Lord stands. He never has a plan B because he never needs a plan B. He is the sovereign and he works out his good pleasure exactly according to his intent. In Proverbs 21, we have an interesting chapter. In Proverbs 21, we have two verses at the very beginning in verses 1 and 2 and then two verses in verses 30 to 31, that kind of serve as, a, as bookends to this particular chapter. And these Proverbs deal again with the authority of God. Proverbs 21, verses 1 to 2. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart's. And then in verses 30 and 31, there is no wisdom and no understanding and no counsel against the Lord. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. Over and over again, Proverbs emphasizes the fact that God has absolute sovereignty, unquestioned, unrivaled sovereignty over his creation. And our understanding of authority must begin with that reality. Now, it's important to note that God exercises this authority through two important means. He mediates that authority through two important means. First of all, he mediates it through his written law, through verbal or what we call special revelation. God manifests or mediates his authority by his written law. And then secondly, he also manifests or exercises his authority through the laws that he has instilled and that he sustains in creation. What we can call general revelation or natural revelation. In other words, God mediates his authority. He manifests his authority over us as his creatures in these two ways. First of all, by the scriptures. By what is called the law. That's how God exercises his authority. How he mediates it towards us today. Through his verbal revelation. But he also manifests it through creation. He manifests it through natural revelation. Through the laws that he has instilled in his creation to reveal What kind of a God he is. Let's look at each one of these quickly. First, God's authority is expressed through verbal revelation. And it is particularly evident in this very fascinating designation of the word of God as the fear of the Lord. Now we have studied this topic of the fear of the Lord several months ago, back in September And I made the point back then that when we see the term fear of the Lord, it's important to note the surrounding context because that designation, fear of the Lord, does not only speak of our response to God. So we often consider that designation, fear of the Lord, to be our response to his power. So we become aware of who he is and we respond with fear. So it's Fear in that subjective sense. The kind of fear that we experience. And indeed, sometimes in the book of Proverbs, it does refer to fear as our response. But in the book of Proverbs, as in other biblical wisdom literature, the phrase fear of the Lord does not just speak of our response. 
It is actually a designation, a title to describe the words of God himself. Let me give you an example of this. In Psalm 19, verses 7 to 9, you have that great psalm about the Bible, about the written word of God. And you have references to law and testimony, precepts of the Lord, commandment of the Lord, judgments of the Lord. And right in the middle of that, verse 9, the psalmist refers to the written word of God as the fear of the Lord. And that is intentional because the term fear of the Lord as a descriptor of God's revelation, his verbal revelation, captures best God's authority. Now, the the term law of God certainly captures the concept of authority as well. But there is a term, a designation of God's word, a descriptor of God's word that puts the emphasis on authority to the ultimate, and that is when God calls his own word the fear of him. It's his fear, and it is his fear because he is the sovereign, authoritative creator and judge of the universe. And so in Proverbs 1 verse 7, we read this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's not our subjective response that serves as the beginning of knowledge. It is the revelation of God that serves as the beginning of knowledge. His words, his revelation, what he has revealed to us is called fear because of its authoritative status. The same idea is in Proverbs 9 verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. This is how God mediates his authority to us through his written testimonies. But God's authority is also expressed through natural revelation. And this is evident in the book of Proverbs and in in biblical wisdom literature in general by all of the references that we find in the book to illustrations taken from nature. You see, the writer of of Proverbs, the compiler, the, the, the speaker of those Proverbs as God granted those men wisdom to come up with sayings that would, that would express truth, God gave them insight to, to, to examine and observe the world around and to, to see the, the laws that God has revealed in the created order. So, for example, we, we even read this in Romans 1 verse 20. Notice what Romans 1 verse 20 says about God's authority. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, that's an authority term, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made. God has made creation such a way in that it testifies to his authority. What kind of laws are in creation? We've talked about some of them in our study of Proverbs already. We've talked about the law of sowing and reaping. That is a law that God has programmed into the created order. It's a law that he continues to sustain by the word of his power even to this day. So that when you sow wheat, you know you're going to get wheat and not figs. It's the law of personal responsibility. That man is always responsible for his moral conduct. That is something that is built into the created world. Law of assimilation, that you become like the thing you love. Proverbs talks about that, and that is built into, that, uh, that, that law is built into the created order and revealed through what has been made. And that's why Solomon will say, for example, in Proverbs 6, 6-11, Go to the ant, O sluggard. He'll talk about locusts and rock badgers and lizards in the book of Proverbs. Because the wise men knew that God has programmed into this this creation, his creation, his laws. And it's through those laws that God, to this day, continues to mediate his authority over this world. It's for that reason, for example, that Paul, back in Romans chapter 1 talks about the sin of homosexuality. And how does he describe it? He describes it as contrary to nature. You don't even need the Bible 
to inform you that homosexuality is contrary to God's plan. Paul says it is already evident in nature. Or he will refer in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 14 to 15, that the differences between men and women, even by their hair, is revealed by nature. The scriptures speak of those differences indeed, but you don't need the scriptures to know that God has created men and women differently. It is revealed by nature. And therefore, when we talk about the LGBT movement and transgenderism, understand this. At its very heart, it is not just some confusion. At its very heart is a rebellion against the way that God has made things. It is a rebellion that says, I don't feel this way and God should not tell me how I must think. I don't care about what what my body says. I think differently. And there should be no law in creation that tells me otherwise. That is the LGBT transgender movement. It is at its heart rebellion against the authority of God, not only in the scripture, but also in nature. To reject these laws is to reject the authority of God himself. I like what G.K. Chesterton stated as he discussed this act of destroying the foundation of divine authority. He said this, quote, In the act of destroying the idea of divine authority, we have largely destroyed the idea of that human authority by which we do Long division sum. You wonder why specialists at Harvard University today can't agree that 2 plus 2 equals 4? It's because they have rejected divine authority. You are left without a foundation. It leads us to our second point. A proper attitude toward authority acknowledges that God has delegated authority to certain individuals. Now, we might be comfortable and and happy with the first principle, but now it becomes a little bit less comfortable. A proper attitude toward authority requires that we, we recognize that God has delegated authority to certain individuals. Indeed, God's authority is ultimate, but he delegates the exercise of some of his authority to his image bearers For the fulfillment of his purposes. He includes his creation. Particularly his image bearers. In the fulfillment. In the attainment of his purposes. But notice this. This delegated authority. Is not spread equally among all. But is done so selectively. According to God's own prerogative. And his good pleasure. As Daniel 2.21 states, it is he who changes the times and the epochs, who removes kings and establishes kings. Now again, this issue, what what you just heard here, is vastly important because again, in our society, one of the most offensive things that you can say today is that there are people who have authority and people who don't, and that is by divine design. If you say that today... And even if you say that to some Christians, professing Christians, they will say that's privilege and that's evil. But the book of Proverbs clearly teaches that God in his own prerogative, according to his right, has on his own accord and for his own purposes, decided to give some authority and others he's given to submit. That is biblical And this takes place in several spheres. And Proverbs recognizes and and establishes what I will say are are four basic spheres of authority. And these are critical. And listen, these spheres of authority are critical because young men in particular have a problem with this. Single men particularly have a problem with authority. And so it's very important for us to 
to go through and, and realize the spheres of authority that have been created by God and the spheres that have received that delegated authority. First of all, parents. Parents. The book of Proverbs depicts parents and the father in particular as the most fundamental of human authorities. Let me say that again. The book of Proverbs depicts parents and the father in particular as the most fundamental of human authorities. That's why you have throughout the book of Proverbs this repeated statement, repeated more than any other phrase or formula, my son, my son, my son, my son, my son, my son, my son. It is the most fundamental aspect of authority. And by the way, again, when we look at our culture today, what is most under attack? Fatherhood. Fatherhood. Just look at the constitution for the BLM movement. It would very much love to completely remove the concept of fatherhood from our understanding and memories. Because once again, it is a revolt against divine authority. Parents, according to the book of Proverbs, are charged with the responsibility and the right to instruct, to admonish, and even to exercise corporal punishment. This, it's fascinating when you do a study of the book of Proverbs and you see how many times parents are called upon to use the rod with children. And of course, that is not politically correct today, but it demonstrates the high view that the, the, the wise men placed on parents and their responsibilities to exercise authority, exercise authority in the home. Children, in turn, are called upon to respect their parents to obey their teaching and appreciate their discipline. And let me say this, a child's submission to this most basic expression of authority is key to success in life. And listen, you don't even have to turn to the book of Proverbs to realize that. Again, this is built into creation itself. Every statistic shows this. That homes where the father is absent or homes where the father is abusive or homes where the father is feminized, lead to children who have problems and failures for the rest of their lives. But homes where dads do what dads should do in the eyes of God, turn out time after time after time, according to study after study after study, turn out stable children. It's indisputable. Let's look at some Proverbs that emphasize this. Let me read just a few of these because our time is fleeing. Proverbs 3 verse 1 and 2. Notice how Solomon addresses his son. And notice the authority that is invested in Solomon and the promise that it has for his child. He says, my son, do not forget my teaching. But let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Or look at Proverbs 19.18. Discipline your son while there is hope and do not desire his death. Proverbs 30 verse 17. The eye that mocks a father and scorns a mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out and young eagles will eat it. Strong words against children who are rebellious to their parents. Another, oh, by the way, all of this is based on what we know as the fifth commandment, right? Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God has given you. And that is a commandment. That is not just applicable to theocratic Israel because the Apostle Paul takes it and prescribes it to the Ephesian church, says the same thing. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. He quotes the fifth commandment and says, this is the first commandment with a promise. It's still binding today. And if I can appeal to you young men who are still under the roof of your fathers. Let me just say this, that the thing that will mark you out for success or failure 
in a most practical way, next to regeneration. Supernatural regeneration is the most, the, the, the most influential thing in life by far. We understand that. But the next thing that will determine a trajectory for you is how you honor your parents. That is, that will, that will color your life for the rest of your life. But you spend your time in your father's home in rebellion, you can be guaranteed that, this, that the alternative of this commandment will kick in and you will not enjoy long years in the land. You will enjoy not the promise, but the consequence of discipline by the Lord. A second sphere is, is the sphere of civil magistrates, particularly kings. The book of Proverbs refers to kings, civil magistrates, regularly. And portrays kings in particular as God's vice regents on earth. The king is the highest human authority in civic affairs. This is different than the family. The family has its own sphere. And as I'm going to say later, these spheres are distinct. In civic matters, the king has the highest authority. He is to function as God's vice regent on earth. To exercise justice. To protect the innocent to reward the righteous, to avenge the oppressed, and to punish evildoers. And again, the book of Proverbs emphasizes over and over again that crucial to successful living in this world is a willing submission to those civil authorities. Crucial. Crucial for this life. Proverbs 24 verses 21 to 22, some strong words Here the wise man says this, My son, fear the Lord and the king. Do not associate with those who are given to change, for their calamity will rise suddenly, and who knows the ruin that comes from both of them. Notice how closely he links the Lord and the king. Fear the Lord and the king. Proverbs 14, verse 35, The king's favor is toward a servant who acts wisely, who is submissive. But his anger is toward him who acts shamefully. Proverbs 19 verse 12, The king's wrath is like a roaring of the lion, but his favor is like the dew on the grass. Speaking of those things in positive ways. Now again, you might think, well, this is true of the theocratic nation of Israel. But again, we find the same principle Reflected in New Testament teaching. Look at Titus chapter 3 verse 1. Where Paul writes to Titus on the island of Crete. He says this. Remind them, the Cretans. To be subject to rulers, to authorities. To be obedient. And to be ready for every good deed. There's a third sphere. A third sphere of authority in the book of Proverbs. And it's what we would call teachers. Teachers, Proverbs recognizes that God has also delegated authority to those who teach his laws and his statutes. These are the spiritual influences in the nation. These are those who have the authority in the area of knowledge and wisdom, who shape and who grow others by conveying and applying the revelation of God. And if a man is to have success in this world, he must also learn to respect and to honor and to follow these men that God has set up as these spiritual influences, as these spiritual teachers. For example, Proverbs 22 verse 17, incline your ear and hear the words of the wise. That's a That's a a phrase, a command that requires submission. Incline your ear, open it up, listen. Proverbs 11 verse 14, where there is no guidance, the people fall. But in abundance of counselors, there's that, the special term for teachers, counselors. There is victory. Proverbs 13 verse 13, the one who despises the word will be in debt to it, but the one who fears the commandment will be rewarded. And in the context of that proverb there, it's it's really referring to those who are the instruments of teaching the word and the commandment among the people of Israel. 
Now again, this is analogous in the New Testament to a similar sphere. We have the sphere in, in the New Testament teaching of elders and, 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 and those who are overseers. And we have a text like Hebrews 13 verse 7, which says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Or a few verses later in Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls. There is a final, a fourth sphere referenced a few times in the book of Proverbs. And it's referenced by the term masters. But this is a sphere that, 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 delegate, that, that has delegated authority from God in the sphere of labor. In the sphere of labor. And if a man is to have success in this world, he must also respect and submit to the authorities that God has placed over him in the area of his working, in the area of his labor. And so Proverbs 25, verse 13 says, Like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him. He refreshes the soul of his masters. That's a good thing. It recognizes the subordination of that servant to the one who sent him. Or Proverbs twenty-seven eighteen: He who tends a fig tree will eat its fruit, and he who cares for his master will be honored. And that's treated in a good sense. Again, we find the similar statement in the New Testament. Titus 2, verses 9 to 10, Urge slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything. To be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of our God and Savior in every respect. Number three, a proper attitude toward authority affirms that those with authority must exercise it in a way consistent with God's will. Since every human authority is derived from God, every human authority is accountable to him, even the government of a secular nation. That government of a secular nation has not received its right to rule from its own, its own creativity. Even that government of a secular nation will give an account to God for the way in which that government has exercised the authority given to it. And just an example of this is Pilate. You remember Pilate as he interviewed, as he questioned Jesus there during Jesus' arrest. And Jesus made the statement to Pilate, who had no concern for these religious matters. And Jesus said, you would not be here if my father had not put you here. Such authority can function correctly only when it is exercised in the manner that God has intended So Proverbs not only instructs those who are under authority to submit to that authority, but it also instructs those with authority to exercise it with righteousness and justice according to the intent that God has made. Now, what that has given rise to is an interesting interesting consideration. As As I mentioned, Israel was a theocratic nation. It had a king, the highest human individual, one man over the entire people. But even that man, his authority was not absolute. In fact, we could read, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 18 to 20, how when a king would rise to the throne, his very first responsibility was to take the Mosaic law and copy it out word for word by his own hand. That would be a demonstration that the king was under Authority. He was not the law of the land. And that's what gave rise to this principle expressed in Latin. There's the principle that says rex lex. That, that means that the king is the law. And the Bible does not recognize that in any form. Instead, the Bible, whether that's for the people of Israel, the theocratic nation, or even for Governments today, it is lex rex. The law is the king. God's law stands over every 
authority and determines how those authority must exercise that authority. We could look at various we could look at various proverbs on this. Our time is fleeting. It's in your handout. But over and over again, we see that the book of Proverbs commends the exercise of authority that includes righteousness and justice and, and also describes the problem of when an authority figure exercises that judgment in injustice and unrighteousness. For example, Proverbs 16 Verse 10, a divine decision is in the lips of a king. His mouth should not err in judgment. He should not tell lies. He should not accept that which is incorrect. Proverbs 16, verse 12, it is an abomination for kings to commit wicked acts. For a throne is established on righteousness. Let me move to the final principle here, it's this. A proper attitude toward authority demands submission to those in positions of authority. A proper attitude toward authority demands that we submit to those in positions of authority in their respective spheres. Proverbs emphasizes that those under authority have a duty to respect and submit to the ones to whom God has delegated his power, his right And this is a fundamental key to successful living in a treacherous world. If you want to do well in this world, learn this. And again, I've mentioned it before that sometimes for young men or for single men, you know, you're kind of like that. I remember being in South Africa and being in one of the, one of the game parks there. And there were these, these juvenile male bull elephants. And because there were no old male elephants, these juvenile male elephants were just tearing up the park. Just, they'd just come into the forest and they just tip trees over for no, no reason. they just destroy things. And so what the South African government officials did is find, they found some, some old elephants, bull elephants from a different park, and they brought it in and immediately those juvenile Bull elephants got their act together. No more tipping trees. And, and, and this is a problem for young men. And I would even say single men. A problem with, with submitting to authority. Of thinking that your manliness is going to be best demonstrated by your resistance. Whereas biblical wisdom says no. Your dignity, your wisdom, your honor will be demonstrated in your ability to submit to those whom God has placed over you in willful compliance. Exodus 22 verse 28 is a basis for this where God says you shall not curse God nor curse the ruler of your people. Again, that proverb where, where the wise man says, my son, fear the Lord and the king and do not associate with those who are given to revolution. Could go on and on, and there are proverbs in your handout that you can read. But let me summarize this point with this. Sages knew, this is a quote from Longman, Trimper Longman. He said this quote Sages knew that successful living came from knowing one's right place in the power structure of the universe and in their culture. The sages understood that it was important to respect the powers above them, both divine and human. This is particularly the case when those powers have the ability to destroy them. The latter is certainly the case with both God and King. Now, as we close this time, obviously, it raises a question. Is obedience to authorities absolute? The answer to that is obviously no. As Jesus himself said in Matthew 22, verse 21, Render to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar, but render to God the things that belong to God. There is in that statement a recognition that the sphere of leadership for Caesar is limited. And that it can encroach upon the sphere that is for God alone, or the sphere of other divinely established institutions and Jesus made it clear that Caesar deserves honor and respect and submission in the things that Caesar has been appointed and delegated to do. 
But in the things that are beyond that, you give those things to God, or you give those, that submission to whatever authority has been placed in that other area. And there, will become, there will come times in our lifetime, men, where we will be demanded to do things that are beyond Caesar's prerogative and his right. And we will need to be ready to follow the words of Jesus and say, we will only give to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. But the things that belong to God, we will not render to Caesar. We need to be ready like Daniel in Daniel chapter 6 verse 10, who in an edict came out that, that transgressed his worship of God, he was ready to deal with the consequences and say that he would not give the king that authority. And he went up to his room, opened his window, and he prayed as he always had done, despite Caesar's law. Or Peter in Acts 5 verse 29, who when he is commanded no longer to preach, he says, we cannot do that, we must obey God. Those times are coming, men, if not already here, and we must be ready for those times. And we must be sold ultimately to that one sovereign. It takes us back to the very first point that there is one who is sovereign over all and he alone has our entire loyalty, our entire worship, our entire love and affection. And it is for him that we will obey in every situation for his glory and his glory alone. Let's pray. Father, as we read these Proverbs and study this topic, we are quickly reminded of the rebellion that still remains in our flesh. We grate against the idea of authorities over us, especially human authorities, bosses, supervisors, police officers. It is the very essence of sin to want to rebel. We also recognize and confess our envy when we see others with authority and we don't have it. We confess those things to you and ask that you would take this teaching and press it into us deeply. Make us men who are submissive to that authority, those authorities that you have rightly established. We would recognize them and out of love for you, joyfully submit to their leadership. And at the same time, Father, especially as we see the deterioration and the anarchy in our culture, we pray for courage. The courage that would have exclusive, full loyalty to you and you alone, when more and more pressure comes for us to capitulate and to follow this culture. Give us the courage we need. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.